table. Hello, hello. How's it going? Uh, we are uh, a, a weekly broadcast. We talk about uh, things that entertain us and hopefully entertain you as well. Uh, now that The Walking Dead is over until October, uh, we've still managed to come up with interesting things to uh, show you and uh, talk to you about. And in fact, I'm going to show you something quickly here. This isn't a story I want to talk about, but what this is, this is a picture of a Barbie doll with uh, a hair clip attached to its face. And the caption that went with this when I saw it online this morning was, my eight-year-old niece wanted to watch Aliens last night. I found this in the living room this morning. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, I thought that was quite awesome. So uh, that's what an eight-year-old thinks of now after you show her, <laughs> after you show her Aliens. So that's, uh, that's the kind of stuff that we talk about here on Hey All You Zombies if you're just joining us for the first time. I would love to see an eight-year-old girl reenacting aliens with Barbies. I mean, that's yeah. that's what we're, we're missing with that photograph. We're seeing the, the end results, but I, I, the, the story behind it just has to be, oh. I'm sure that if we poke around enough on the internet, we'll, on, on YouTube, we'll find that video. But uh, there's no time. Who has time? Time. Time is a, you know. Yeah, it's ephemeral, I know. Familiar stranger. Yeah, so uh, there was an, an interesting news story uh, this week that you've jumped on uh, as one of your topics. This kind of blew my mind uh, a little bit that the idea of 3D guns printed in your 3D printer uh, uh, can be easily and readily available. Yeah, well, this, so, is, this doesn't seem. Uh, this just, uh, the first thing I thought of when I heard this story is it's already difficult enough to get on a plane. Already, like, uh, what are we going to do now? I mean, what, what happens now? Right, so I'll, I'll tell the, the basic facts for anyone who, you know, I guess if you've been living in a cave, didn't catch it, or maybe just heard a bit of the story and didn't know all the details. So um, there is a technology called 3D printing. We've talked about it previously on the show here, but it, it is... Tremendous technology. It's it's a printer that has the ability to print out objects right. using liquid plastic. So instead of ink being printed on a piece of paper, it is layers of liquid plastic that as it cools, solidifies, and you build layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. You can send a computer, uh, a computer image, as in a, like a three-dimensional model, and it can actually build that sculpture. And people have been doing this uh, with some limited forms of, of success. You can make little tiny figurines, people have made whistles, but as always the technology is being pushed in terms of what we can actually do. This idea that you could go buy a printer, put it in your home, somebody sends you a little file, and then within say 40 minutes there's a and you have a physical object in your well, home. And I'm also told that the sort of industrial versions of these machines that exist um, are used to uh, quickly replicate uh, film props, if you need something, if you need a, a Maltese Falcon sculpture, you can make one in one of these, uh, uh, you know, printers. So, I mean, they have very practical uses, because who doesn't need a Maltese Falcon sculpture, but they have very practical uses. But uh, this is, this is uh, scary, particularly uh, in light of, you know, the idea that homemade bombs are so easy to make and, you know, in light of Boston and all that stuff. Um, the idea that you can literally print off a gun now um, that would be virtually undetectable. Apparently, the, the firing pin still needs to be made of metal. 
But beyond that, uh, the rest of it is is made of like this polyurethane printing material. Right. The moment that 3D printing became something that um, people could get their hands on. Now, I mean, you know, it, it still costs about eight thousand uh, dollars or fourteen hundred dollars to be able to get some form of a 3D printer, but it's it's accessible in that there are universities that have bought it for their engineering departments. Uh, enough people are now getting their hands on it that they're playing around with what you can do with the 3D printer. Doctors have used it beautifully to uh, create uh, bone structures for replacement. There's a woman who actually has had her replacement jaw done in a 3D printer because it can take, you know, you can, you know, with a computer, you can scan an object to really capture its detail. And then to be able to have a printer just sort of fabricate that is fantastic. And but they, the, they keep, what, would the, what would the jawbone be made of? I, in this case, it's not plastic, so most 3D printers operate in uh, an ABS plastic. But uh, if I remember what the doctors are using, it's kind of a um, like a, a silicon organic kind of material. I'd have to, to, to check it up again, but it is something that the body is not going to reject. It's sort of conducive. And what they had done was they had um, had the woman uh, have a, um, a functional MRI, which would capture a 3D image of her existing jaw that was deteriorating rapidly. So they could then sort of, you know, extrapolate a model from that and print it off in a material that could then be implanted in her face and give her back her jawline. Beautiful, miraculous story, wonderful example of what can be done with 3D printing. People have been trying to figure out, can you make something that actually works? Can you make something that have moving parts? Um, I, there was one man who created an actual flute that you could blow and would actually be able to play. That was beautiful. Make music. There um, are people who actually can 3D print model kits of kinetic sculptures, so sculptures that actually have some form of mechanical motion. So the, the world is just beautiful. It's like being handed a genie's bottle, and you rub it and make a wish as to anything that you want to be able to create. All you have to have is the, the relevant engineering skills to be able to kind of figure it out in a computer and send it to a printer. So of all these people in the world who have been trying to find answers to this incredible question, there is a young man in Austin, Texas named Cody Wilson. He's 25 years old, and he decided that it was going to be inevitable anyways, but he decided that he'd be the first one to do it, and he would work on trying to create a 3D printed gun. Uh, and so this is what has happened. He's been working on it for a long time. Uh, a lot of the, 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 the first attempts to try to create a gun, it didn't work. I mean, it's one thing to sculpt something. It's another thing to actually make it functional. Yeah, you can make something that looks like a gun, but uh, whether Correct. it fires or not, it's another thing. Yeah. Well, and as you pointed out, you're dealing with something mechanical, but you're also dealing with chemistry and physics here. It's highly complex. But uh, he felt, number one, that uh, if, you know it's going to be used for that anyways, but he also knew that there are people who makeshift their own weapons in their garages. This should be translatable. The kind of making and engineering involved, you should be able to bring it to a 3D printing uh, technique. So this is what he, he did. He crafted a gun, and he's demonstrated that it can be fired. And that's been the big world-breaking news. It's been you know, covered in, in Europe, all over the place. Uh, and a lot of people are now asking all sorts of philosophical questions about this, why you would do it. Uh, what does it mean for technology? What does it mean for human nature? There's a lot of questions to try to explore. We're not going to be able to even touch the, the tip of the iceberg, but we'll talk about it a bit. I, I'd be interested to know what your thoughts on it. But I will tell you that this gun that he's crafted, so what it is, it is a very makeshift gun. I got an image here. 
Currently, it only fires one bullet. So there I have, um, that's the, the main image that was captured by Forbes. Forbes was the first um, outlet that actually had access to this. Right. And as you can see, it looks almost kind of like a flare gun. Or a squirt gun, even. The squirt gun, it, it's not terribly sophisticated. When you print it off, it's it actually prints in 15 different pieces. So you've got 15 plastic pieces. Each piece has to be printed off. It would take time. I'm thinking it's going to take about seven to eight hours. I haven't read how long it actually does take. But usually these small components, I've seen whistles that take 45 minutes to print off. So I would imagine that all 15 pieces would take about maybe a good portion of a day to print off. You need an $8,000 printer. As many people have pointed out, it'd be much easier to try to get a gun another way. But once you've assembled those 15 pieces, then you're correct. You have to add a, a nail. It's the one component that they can't reproduce in terms of being a firing pin. Oddly enough, the spring that's required, they could produce. Wow. Which, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and there are two scary things about this. One is that um, uh, the, the, the nail that's used as the firing pin is not enough to register this gun if you walk through a metal detector. It's right. too small in terms of how much metal that is involved. And the second aspect is that he is planning to take the computer file that he used to print this off and upload it online and make it available so that anyone with a 3D printer could conceivably download it and print off their own um, gun and use right. it. And what was, what's his reasoning for doing this? Why um, would he want to make a gun uh, easily available, or not maybe not easily, but more readily available uh, to the hands of someone who maybe can't pass a background check, uh, someone who might in fact want to try and smuggle a gun into somewhere where you probably shouldn't have a gun, and that's equipped with metal detectors and all that sort of thing. What could his possible reason be? Well, uh, and this is where things get tricky. And actually, before I answer that, I will point out one other important fact about this gun. Um, right now, it is an unreliable pistol. Right. Meaning that uh, when you fire it, there's a very good chance that instead of it firing, it may explode. Right. <laughs> kind of like those old reliable 45s and, and yep. guns in the West where you'd pick it up and, aha, and then it would blow up in your face. Instead well, of and I imagine it doesn't have much range. You know, all that kind of stuff, right? Right. It's, it, it is a proof in concept, meaning that all he's done is shown that it can be done, and we know that as technology moves faster and the prices of 3D printers get down, then, yes, what it, it, it represents is something that will happen and become true. Um, his, uh, you know, I don't have his, his responses to journalists in front of me. I think that at this point it's hard to guess what the true intent really is. Right. Um, his general response has been that, number one, he doesn't see this as being a gun. It's a tool. And like all tools, it can be used by bad people or it can be used by good people. That's but, an NRA thing, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Uh, he says, basically, he's trying to make a point uh, that he studied law in university. He read a lot of uh, philosophy, uh, specifically from anarchists from several hundred years ago who talk about the nature of society, about uh, the nature of war, and the importance of the average citizen having access to the tools of warfare. Yeah. And it's, I guess, it, it sort of falls along the philosophy that democracy 
isn't something that's assured by the vote, but assured by the fact that the government can never really have 100% power, that there's always the threat that its citizens might disagree and object and rise up. And you have to have a well-armed militia, all that stuff. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a very current debate still now, even, you know, to this, to this day. But this just seems uh, irresponsible to me. Yes. I get it as an idea. I get it as a concept. I get it as a proof of concept and all that, all that stuff. But I, I, I find it, I, I think it's irresponsible. Well, it, for me, it, it's, as I said, the, my analogy is that if you were handed a genie's lamp and you were told that you were granted a wish, um, would you really waste that wish on wanting to have it done? There, there are so many other things that are out there that people are doing. I'm going to show you an image here of uh, something I thought that was kind of cool. So there, there are people now who are working on using 3D printers to create food. We already have 3D printers that can create sculptures out of chocolate. Uh, there's this one woman, I've just forgotten her name, but she published this image to, because there are people who are working on trying to create 3D printed pasta. And the advantage, of course, being that it wouldn't just be the pasta that we know in the stores, that it would be pasta of different shapes and different sizes. Uh, there is a, a magazine, uh, let's see if I can remember their names, called Dezine, that's it. And uh, what they did was they actually had, instead of, you know, in a magazine they may have a little section on who the staff are, all the different people who write the articles. Well, instead of going out and getting headshots, they got their heads all 3D, from, all 3D printed. That's cool. Which that's is very, very neat. And so the issue with the pasta that I would have is that because they're all different shapes and sizes, you couldn't possibly cook them together because some are dense and very big and thick and others aren't. They, they would never be able to cook that properly. Well, you I think shell them in separately and then put them. Correct. Know. I think the idea would be that uh, you experiment with different types of shapes in terms of which would work as a cooking element, which wouldn't. But I mean, you know, for me, my, that's my, my initial disappointment is that of everything and anything in the world that you could sit down and try to make, a gun seems to be a very disappointing approach to it. But what's interesting about Cody Wilson that is different from every other pro-gun stance that's out there is that he is approaching this from a, a sense of technology. And so that's something I'm very familiar with. And that he's not just doing this because um, he, he wants everyone to have the right to own a weapon or a gun, but he's doing this because he wants to demonstrate the power of technology to be disruptive. Right. And that technology in its disruptive manner can actually be a very good agent in terms of, of changing the world. Right. So uh, he's an intellectual anarchist, but who happens to be maybe putting guns in the hands of the wrong people. Correct. But I mean, um, this has sort of been a philosophy that has been adopted by a great number of people all throughout technology. So the invention of the internet, the creation of the web, was built along that, that concept. Uh, MP3s as being something that was going to change the world of music for good and be something that people who listen to music will, will be for their benefit rather than the people who are reaping lots of money off of it. The, the problem with taking that stance, and I understand it, uh, uh, as someone who, I mean, I felt it, you know, I'm not 25 anymore, but I can relate to his, his age, I can relate to, uh, to being that young and seizing on to the very edge of a revolution that you know is happening. It's just you're at the right place at the right time. I know what it's like when I was a teenager, hooking up a computer for the first time with a uh, 300 baud modem, 
right. to a phone line and hearing that as I connected to another computer and realizing that I had tapped into something that the rest of the world was, was woefully ignorant about. Uh, that all these adults and all these powerful leaders and corporations had no clue how everything was going to change. And here I am tasting it and sampling it so far ahead of the curve. I know what that feels like. I, for me, my life dramatically changed from being in high school and sitting there and um, reading uh, The Serpent and the Rainbow. Right. Wade Davis's wonderful journey down into South America. Quite fitting because he was researching zombie culture, uh, the whole idea of real people coming back from the dead, and him being able to target it down to a substance called Datura. I wanted to know more about Datura. This was in the age where there was no internet. And so I ended up going from one library to the next and being really, really aggravated that I couldn't find it. And as soon as I connected online and I could get all sorts of information from people around the world, I understood how this was going to change everything. Right. right. And so I think this is where he's kind of approaching it. Oddly enough, though, uh, through the idea of, of printed weaponry. And, and I don't agree with what he's doing, but I sort of understand the, no, the, I get that. I, I get that, and it's yeah. certainly getting a lot of attention. And you know, it's like you, you have to start somewhere. I just, you know, as I say, a gun seems like an obvious, and dangerous, and kind of irresponsible way to start. And I get it. I get, I get the idea behind it, but in a very, uh, in a very practical way, uh, it seems to me that it's a, a dangerous thing. Except that, you know, as you say, these things explode as often as they shoot. So maybe, uh, you know, maybe they, they won't be the weapon of choice for anybody anytime soon. Well, and I predict it's going to be. Um, I mean, he, he is. I at least applaud him for being well read. I applaud him for taking an interest in history of not just listening to the rhetoric that pro-gun people often put on their blogs and on their websites or just listening to conservative radio, that he is going off and he's reading French philosophers and anarchists and trying to think about it. Uh, he is deeply tied into things like the Bitcoin currency. It's how he's raised a lot of money for what he's doing. He's taking a look at guys like Kim.com and what they're doing with online storage and the revolution. He's trying to be very intelligent about it. But I, I feel that if he had done his research and watched what happened with personal computers, watched what happened with Steve Jobs and, and Apple, you know, no one could predict how technology was going to change. It's, yeah. it's very arrogant to sit there and think you know what's going to be the consequence of bringing this weapon into the world. You don't have what that, that's going to feel like. Most of the people out there, from, uh, from Ellison to Jobs, all of them could never predict the impact of their technology. Even Steve Jobs with the iPod, which you could argue was, it was one of the great technological revolutions for good, had a moment where as he began to travel the world later on after Apple's success, he could see kids all around the world using his iPods, and he began to regret the fact that there was now a universal culture it wasn't different. There was a time in which, if you traveled as he did in his teens, then he would see people using, you know, the, the technology of their culture, of their, you know, everybody had their own version of a skateboard. Now the whole world was all sort of buying the same product, and he began well, to all, and, and, it, that. and it has uh, uh, shut people out in a in a in a very big way. I mean, you see people riding on the subway who were like together but they're both listening to their iPods. They're not talking. They're not communicating in any way, you know. So there, there are unforeseen consequences to everything. 
And I think we're going to, eventually, we will see the consequences of this uh, uh, printable plastic gun as well. And it, it, I, I don't foresee it being good. Although, who knows, you know? Yeah, I mean... Uh, Maybe only I, heroes. Maybe only heroes will be able to print them off. I don't I'd know. like to think that, that it will never actually, you know, the result will be that it will never actually be used because the preference will always be to use a metal gun. Yeah. Plastic guns might melt. So that it may never actually be a real threat. Yeah. Maybe it might serve a political need. But I, I think that if he feels that he's not going to be affected by it negatively, he's underestimating. I think he, you know, he probably is, has said, I understand that one day somebody might use this, might even use it to shoot a little kid. Yeah. Uh, but I think he underestimates how much that's going to impact him if that actually does happen. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, this week, uh, I thought I would talk about uh, Ray Harryhausen. And uh, Ray Harryhausen is uh, someone who was a huge hero of mine uh, growing up. And, and eventually, I got to meet him and spend quite a bit of time with him uh, uh, while he was uh, promoting uh, one of his books. And here's a photograph of me with Ray and a number of the uh, uh, creations that he used in, in his films. And... Uh, it really, for me, first started when I was a kid, uh, because when I was uh, young, I used to uh, spend a great deal of time on Saturday mornings watching whatever uh, was on Saturday morning television. And it was always Jason and the Argonauts or, you know, something like that. And I would wonder, you know, how is it possible that uh, skeletons can uh, have a sword fight with uh, the actors, the human actors that I've been watching. And I was really swept away by uh, so much of, of uh, this great art that he created. And so he was a, a stop motion animator. He had been really affected by seeing King Kong for the first time. King Kong, who uh, sits on my desk here uh, atop the uh, Empire State Building. Ray Harryhausen saw it when he was a young man. And uh, uh, he, he just, he, he couldn't, he, he couldn't look away and, it, and it, it impacted the rest of his life. And so he went into uh, uh, stop motion animation in, in the movies. And, uh, you know, he was often hobbled by uh, smaller budgets uh, and he didn't quite have as much money as he should have had uh, to create some of the effects that he did. But what he did in each of his movies was uh, bring something that felt, to me anyway, organic and something that felt real, even though the motions were sometimes a little jerky, the, even though uh, they, they, it was quite clearly not real, but there was something that was really uh, handcrafted about it that always really appealed to me. Uh, you know, his last film was Clash of the Titans in 1981, uh, not the, the new... Bring the Kraken, unleash the Kraken movie. Uh, but if you put the two side by side, quite clearly there's obvious differences. But the 81 version with uh, Ray Harryhausen's work in it appeals to me so much uh, because um, while it not may not be, the creatures may not be the most realistic looking creatures, the water doesn't uh, fall off their backs, maybe as it might in real life if these things were to exist, as it looks like in the new version of the film. Um, you know, the, the, the scale in the new version, which was in 3D, and the whole thing was huge and, and very impressive looking. But whenever I see that kind of thing, 
on screen. It, 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 it smells to me of binary code. I can just imagine someone sitting in front of a, of a keyboard creating these things. And it is an art form, and I understand that. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing when it's done very, very well. But for me, Ray Harryhausen's work uh, always had something like a little bit extra to it. It always had something that just felt uh, like it was organic that uh, CGI just simply doesn't have for me. And uh, he died this week at age 92. George Lucas has said uh, that without Ray Harryhausen, there probably wouldn't have been a Star Wars because his imagination wouldn't have been opened in the way that it was when he uh, uh, watched all of uh, Harryhausen's movies growing up. And so it was, a, you know, he was, he was, you know, an elderly man. He hadn't worked in a, in a very long time. Uh, in terms of, of creating film, but, you know, he influenced generation or more. I mean, if you look in uh, uh, Tim Burton's movies, there's frequently a little homage to Ray Harryhausen somewhere in them. And, you know, I can't even begin to tell you in, in animated movies how often you'll see uh, a tribute from something like, like It Came Beneath the Sea or The Earth versus the Flying Saucers or something wedged into uh, another story because... Um, you know, he had that kind of influence on, on people and he certainly did on me. And, and, uh, I just thought that I would spend a moment or two to, uh, commemorate Ray Harryhausen. Yeah. And I, I think what, one of the, the things that you're picking up there, uh, picking up on there was that when you see, uh, Ray Harryhausen's work on a movie, you're seeing the, the expressions of one man, yeah. whereas often in movies where there are computer generated work, it's an entire team of people who are all contributing. One guy just handles water, another guy handles a flame. And so you don't have quite that same sense of the puppeteer, of right. the, the, the dancer, of the performer that you would have with, I, I guess, Ray Harryhausen. Right. Um, you know, that kind of thing. And, and how wonderful it is that he reached the age of 92 because there have been so many people who were pioneers in their field and then quickly forgotten uh, that he managed to be able to see the impact that his work had. Because his early films, I mean, uh, you know, he's hailed today, but you go down the street and you ask people how many <laughs> how many people have seen, you know, what was it, The, the Dinosaur from Genji, a couple of his more obscure films. Most people haven't seen those movies. They kind of write them off as being B-movies from the 1950s. But he lived to an age where he got to see the impact, the number of people who come up to him and say, you, you know, you inspired me. I do what I do today because of you. That that's phenomenal. It's a beautiful thing to celebrate. Well, I just I, I just disappeared there for a sec because somewhere I have some Harryhausen figures. I don't know exactly where they are. I wasn't able to lay my hands on them just then. But each of the ones that appeared in the movies, you know, on screen they looked enormous to me, and and they seemed to have some you know, real kind of weight to them. Uh, but they were small, you know, they'd be, you know, anywhere from this big to maybe this big, maybe, you know, eight centimeters to maybe 40 would be a big one, you know, um, or in uh, like a really big one. Normally, I think probably they topped out around 15 inches. And, you know, that's, that's uh, workable, I guess, in terms of, you know, making the stop motion animation, but the impact that they had on screen uh, far outweighed the size that they were. And, and it was his skill with them. Loads of people do uh, stop motion animation. Recently, Paranorman uh, was a stop motion animated film. There's lots of them that have been, you know, it, it is, 
I thought for a while a dying art because it is so labor intensive and it is so incredibly expensive. But uh, but it's not. People I think still really respond uh, to the imperfections in it. I think uh, you know. I remember asking Ray Harryhausen uh, in this long. I interviewed him for about an hour and a half on camera and. Uh, I, I remember asking him about uh, King Kong when he first saw King Kong. One of the things that people talk about that movie is that you can see where the the, the model of King Kong was touched, right? It because it, it had fur and it was you know sort of brought, pushed down the fur a little bit. And Harryhausen said, "Well, I never saw that as an imperfection. I, I just thought of that as the wind blowing uh, King Kong's fur around, and you know." That's the kind of thing I think that, that I find so kind of lovely about this is it takes a bit of imagination. It's not just simply a spectacle that happens in front of you. It is something that, uh, you know, if you allow it, it'll really seep into you a little bit. Well, and the, the pure uh, ambition of wanting to create things that were anatomically correct, because he, he wasn't just taking on creatures of fantasy, but he was taking on real animals as well. Whereas a lot of people today who do stop animation, stop motion animation, they're doing cartoon characters. They're doing caricatures. They're doing embellishments in people who are exaggerated. For him to take on animals that you're going to re recognize, even things like dinosaurs, where there is kind of a sense that you should know what a dinosaur moves and is like, for him to take that on, I think, um, speaks a lot just to, to his talent and skill, that he would be that confident to do so. It's just remarkable. Well, and here's something that I didn't know about him until just a second ago. He's the great-grandson of the African explorer, David Livingstone. Maybe no way! Mr. Livingston, I presume. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. And uh, uh, but he was a he was a he was a, a really lovely guy. I, I as I said, I spent some time with him, and uh, uh, he was um, interesting. And still, I mean, at the point that I interviewed him, he probably hadn't made a stop motion animated film in twenty years, uh, maybe maybe more, maybe you know, twenty or twenty two years. And uh, he still spoke about it with such great passion and, and uh, still loved the art form. But he, he said, and it's quite a famous quote, he just got tired of sitting in dark rooms <laughs> and, you know, talking, you know, working with things that didn't talk back. And so I think he, he, he wanted to try something else. But uh, he lived in London for the past few years of his life and, uh, and was uh, really one of the, not only, you know, masters of, of um, uh, stop motion animation certainly clearly was one of the legends one of the maestros of that art form but one of the the masters of of film i think modern day film in terms of really opening people's imaginations to what film could be all about willis o'brien and you know others came before him but uh, for my money he was the one that really influenced me well, and I want to add to that because uh, I've been following uh, a lot of the, the tributes and memorials uh, devoted to him, and there's a lot of talk about his influence and impact. I think it's immeasurable. The more that you kind of explore, uh, it's not just the fact that you've got James Cameron and George Lucas and Steven Spielberg all hailing him as, as big influences. But something I wanted to point out that I felt was missing from all the, the articles that I've seen that tend to come from film critics um, is that I wanted to show off a couple of things here which is that there's an entire culture that he had a big impact on that we tend not to think of. And what I'm holding up here are figurines that right. uh, guys like me use to play Dungeons and Dragons oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and role-playing games. Uh, here's another one uh, from, and these are all things that I've painted myself. So you buy them in a kit, 
You spend hours in a basement with a little tiny feather brush applying uh, all the little paint and putting it on tables to represent all the stories that we're telling or some of the games are actually you're reenacting battles. Right. And you cannot, I can't imagine that culture existing without Ray Harryhausen. Right. There's sort of, um, that came from Gary Gygax in the early 1970s. He had seen for years people in World War II using little tiny figurines to represent soldiers Right. and tanks and that kind of thing. And being someone who grew up watching Ray Harryhausen, uh, reading The Lord of the Rings, he decided to translate that over to orcs and dragons and things like that. And so you can imagine that the moment they started making these figurines, every artist that started making these things right. uh, couldn't help but draw upon the little figurines that uh, you know Ray Harryhausen created. In fact, before there were zombies in every game, and before there were Nazis in every game, all the early role-playing games, all the Dungeons and Dragons, the mazes and monsters, the computer, you know, uh, dungeon crawlers as we call them, the most common monster you would come across would be an animated skeleton holding a sword and shield. And, and that's just... That's Harryhausen. And, you know, the, the Guardian uh, said some lovely things about him. And... Uh, I just wanted to read one part of it. It says, Harryhausen was an actor performing in super slow motion, one frame at a time and through tiny proxy bodies, often several of them, simultaneously as they interacted with one another. The lives of the characters start in the animator and dribble out drip by drip through his or her fingertips. A stop motion animator in the Sistine Chapel might look up, see God giving life, uh, to Adam in a single, all-at-once bolt and wonder why they didn't get it so easy. That's uh, The Guardian on uh, Ray Harryhausen. Yeah, and it, I just, I don't know. I mean, the meticulous nature of, of him having to, to make those models move, it's, it's hard to imagine what that would be like at that time. Today we have computers, we have all sorts of... It's one thing when you've grown up on the culture of seeing, you know, by the time that you're 14, you've seen a 200, 300 movies that all show dragons and monsters. It's another thing when the only imagery that you're pulling from really are from books, from illustrations, and you're having to use a new technology to try to, to bring that to life. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable. Yeah, yeah I mean, he, you know, he trained with uh, some of the greats of the early days of, of stop motion, uh, but really advanced it, you know, in, in, a, in a big way on his own. And now, I mean, it's certainly, stop motion is still incredibly labor intensive, but, you know, you have cameras that, uh, that you can do different things with. You can do tracking shots and things now because the camera can time, uh, you know, where it should be at a certain moment. I mean, the thing about when Harryhausen was doing this is you could work on something for a week, a month, and get very little film, but then you play it back and go, oh, that didn't work at all. Yeah. <laughs> that did not work one little bit. We have to scrap that and start all over again. And uh, that, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons I think that he retired from uh, stop motion in 1981, but uh, it, is, uh, um, it is a testament to the meticulous nature that he brought to it, uh, that, he, that he stayed with it as long as he did. Yeah. Uh, so if you had, if somebody's trying to hunt down um, a Ray Harryhausen movie, which one would you recommend? Well, the Jason and the Argonauts. I mean, you know, it is, it is the classic. Um, it's, it's the one that, that tends to, uh, I mean, there are, you know, Clash of the Titans is, 
kind of, you know, good, cheesy fun. Uh, but, uh, you know, try uh, something like uh, One Million Years B.C. Uh, uh, Raquel Welch, not the only special effect in that movie worth having a look at. Um, and the Valley of the Guanji, there's a lot. Of I mean, anything that you can get that has his name on it, check it out. Now, have you tried um, doing any animation yourself? or A little bit, years ago, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, for my old TV show, Real to Real, uh, I didn't do it, but we had a stop-motion animated version of the of, uh, the opening of the show made with uh, clay figurines. The NFB did it for us. And it was clay figurines of me and my co-host, Jeff Prevere. And uh, it was really cool. It took a long time to make, uh, but it was very cool. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that uh, it, he has been written about uh, greatly. I mean, we lately have seen a lot of well-known people yeah. um, sort of come and go, and some people get a lot of ink, and some people not so much. Yeah. Well, and, you don't want to die on the same day that Margaret Thatcher does. You know what I mean? Like, the, yeah. you know, it's, it's sort of like you're going to get well, overshadowed a little bit. I think Ray Harryhausen always has been kind of a, a geek love in that, again, it's hard to point to any of his movies that were big. You know, it's, it's not like he did Jaws or he did Star Wars. It's, you know, no, he, absolutely not. And, and the thing uh, about it, though, is that these days the people who uh, write about film and, you know, all this stuff tend to be the geeks that love those movies. So he's getting a lot of notice and writing. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. Um, stop motion animation in Iron Man 3, that's for sure. No, not at all. So uh, for, for our show, I thought I'd, uh, you know, just on a whim, I went off and saw Iron Man 3 so that I would, it'd be perfectly timed that as the credits ended, I'd get up from my seat and leave the theater and walk across town and sit down here. So I have I've just come fresh from my first screening of Iron Man 3 and thought, uh, and I, I did that with great confidence because of your review. Right. Right, like I wouldn't do that if I was worried that it wasn't gonna be a good movie, that we weren't gonna have something great to talk about. I right. did that because I knew that, uh, and let's face it, it's Iron Man 3, so there is some doubt as to whether it could be <laughs> a good well, movie. You know, yeah, you have, see, there, there are two theories about the third installment. Uh, there is The Godfather, example where you have the worst movie in the the series that comes at the end uh because the idea is just sort of played itself out or it's gone stale or whatever whatever reason it becomes so overblown there's also the theory that uh by the time you get to the third one you have a bit of an easier go of it because people already know the characters you don't have to reintroduce the characters at all you you've you've got um you know, the audience expects certain things, and if you give it to them, by and large, they'll be happy, you know? So it can go up and down here. Iron Man did an interesting thing to shake it up. They brought in Shane Black, who best known for writing the Lethal Weapon movies and lots of other things. He was kind of the go-to guy in the late 80s, early 90s for buddy action movies uh, in terms of writing them. And then he made a movie called Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which I really liked a lot with uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. And I, have, I suspect that's how he ended up helming one of the biggest movies of the year uh, would be because Robert Downey Jr. is like, I want my friend. I want my friend to direct it. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I mean, I walked in kind of with some trepidation because of that. Right. 
Uh, and I guess obviously none of us have any clue what's involved in producing a movie like this because it's, you know, I wouldn't think John Favreau would have been a good choice for the first Iron Man movie. And yet, you know, like the, the series I think has been fantastic. Iron Man three to me is the best in the franchise. I've been blown away by it. I think it's one of the best, if not the best comic book adaptation to a movie that we've seen so far. I was just, it's, I can't think of really anything in the movie that I could be critical of, that I could point to and kind of go, well, that could have been better or, you know. I can't. I will only, <laughs> I, you know, I, my only real issue with this movie, because, you know, you have to keep it fresh. So, you know, Robert Downey Jr., the thing that everybody loved about that first movie was his portrayal of, of Tony Stark. He was sort of smart alecky and he had a real sort of, you know, joie de vivre about it. People liked that about it. It was getting tired by the second movie because they overdid it the second movie. By the time the Avengers movie came along, I just thought if he makes one more kind of arrogant, smart-ass remark, I may have to leave. I don't know if I can stand here and, and watch this anymore. It just seemed lazy and very easy. So they had to do something about that. And I think that filling him with some sort of anxiety, it was a good idea, you know, and, and he has panic attacks now. I didn't by a lot of it. I didn't think it was that convincingly portrayed all the time, but I like that they tried to shake it up a little bit. I like that. Um, so you have to change. And I understand that what made the, the first one, another thing that made the first one interesting was the suit. People want to see Iron Man in the suit, flying around and doing stuff. The second movie, which wasn't my favorite uh, of the three, um, kept him in the suit though. So you got plenty of Iron Man doing cool stuff. In uh, the third one, where the first two took every chance and every opportunity to put him in the suit, the third one takes every chance and every opportunity to get him out of the suit. And that kind of annoyed me. I thought, you know what? When you're paying your 10 or 15 bucks to go see Iron Man, you, you want to see Iron Man in the suit. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's my thought on it. <laughs> well, I liked the. Um... I love that they called it the Mark 42. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is, you know, that's that's a brilliant, nice little touch. I love that. I love that he said the line, don't say hack. Nobody said that since the 1980s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I that's, hear, that's, that's, that's real Shane Black stuff, right? They, he writes really crisp, interesting dialogue. And, you know, Shane Black, when, when he was trying to sell scripts, he realized early on that the people that really are the gatekeepers, you know, are the people that read the scripts first. So you've got these underpaid grunts that come to work every day and there's a stack of scripts this high on their desk and they're going through them and reading them. And, you know, whatever happens to be in fashion in that moment uh, is what you're going to be reading. And a lot of them aren't going to be very good. So he wanted to write action movies 80s, kind of the heyday of the kind of thing that he wanted to write. So he would put in little uh, messages to the readers in the dialogue and in the description. So in one of them, in, in one of the Lethal Weapon scripts, uh, he wrote something like, uh, and then they blow off a house, a really nice house, the kind of house that I'm going to buy if you pass the, if I make it, if you pass this script along to the next level and I start making some real money on this. And uh, so he's got a, a sense of humor and, a, and, a, and a, a sharp wit about him, which comes out of the dialogue in Iron Man 3. Yeah, well, and I, I mean, I don't know if it was intended the way that I took it, but for me, I've had a real bone to pick about the way that the word hack has been used. Right. It's, it's long lost its original meaning. 
Uh, I wanted to just ex implode when the whole British phone hack scandal happened. Right, right, right. Because, right. of course, no phones were hacked, for crying out loud. A voicemail account was accessed. Increasingly today, when people use the word hack, they mean somebody guessed a password. That's not hacking. Or, or, yeah, or like just illegal entry of some kind. Correct, yeah, yeah it's not hacking. So I, I kind of cheered with that one. Um, I did like all the sequences that happened between him and the boy. Right. So one of the, the reasons I did like him coming out of the, the armor. I mean, he's always been kind of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde story right. anyway. Uh, in the comic books, Iron Man is often a man who has demons. Uh, he was one of the first characters to really deal with alcoholism as being a source of his demons. Yes. Yes. And so I love the idea that in this, uh, in this movie, to deal with that, they have to pull him out of his one persona. He has to walk around without the armor. Uh, and he gets to play for a while as being the mechanic. So I love the idea that here you have a character who builds and designs things and they actually kind of acknowledge that and give them sequences to act as someone who does build and design things. Far too often in movies we forget the nature of the character that we're presenting, right? And I felt they did that really well. Mm -hmm. um, it, it ran the risk that it could have been a really crappy MacGyver moment when he goes to the hardware store, he yeah. buys a bunch of stupid looking things, but then when you, you realize he's building his own batteries and adding capacitors, everything he does in the movie, if you're technical by nature, it kind of makes the sense that it, in a comic booky way, it's like, okay, good. It's, it's not a MacGyver kind of moment. I thought that was good. Yeah, well, there are things you mentioned the kid. You know, when I first saw the kid, I'm like, oh, no, they're giving him a child sidekick. I was like, ah, no. Uh, and that never appeals to me. But they gave him a child sidekick that he then, you know, said funny things to. I mean, it wasn't just... You know, there, there was a, a, an interesting relationship between the two of them. I'll buy into that. I, I, I will accept that. And they didn't overplay it. Um, so, you know, that's okay by me. They've got to figure out what to do with the Pepper character, Gwyneth Paltrow's character. You know, she's either, uh, in the first movie, the first two movies, just kind of a screaming damsel in distress. And in this movie... Uh, she's a screaming damsel in distress who then becomes. Yeah. I don't want to give anything away, but she. No. But she's well, given a, a power of some sort, and then later, because you know she's not going anywhere. So this isn't a spoiler. If you haven't seen the movie, cover your ears for a second. Later, uh, he it just in voiceover, they're like, and then I fixed Pepper. It was just it just seemed a little bit uh, a little yeah. bit to me. Well, and that's become symptomatic, I think, of um, of, of sort of, uh, I'm trying to delicately you'd find the right words, but I, I think whenever you have these large blockbuster movies and they're trying to, they're adaptations of content that was created 30 years ago, yeah, 60 yeah. years ago, there then becomes this agenda to say, well, we have to give importance to female characters, we have to give importance to minority characters, and it never really works, does it? I mean, whether it's it's <laughs> all the, the female heroines in Lord of the Rings that weren't there in the book, uh, yeah. it's the attempt here to kind of give Pepper from just being this little cute assistant to now being, you know, they, at one point in the movie they refer to her as being a genius. Uh, yeah. She's in charge of his corporation. There is this sense of trying to to reflect the modern world, modern relationships. I'm not sure that it works when you try to revise content that is, comes from a certain era. Generally what we need now are new movies and new stories that reflect that attitude rather than trying to revise the old ones. And so I think that's kind of so, the problem. I, I don't think it would be that difficult to do something interesting with that character. And so far they haven't done it. Um, 
I like the Rebecca Hall character. I mean, you know, except that they, again, don't give her anything much to do. She's more of a plot point than anything else. But I like Rebecca Hall. So I was glad to see her in. Uh, you know, she made a, a terrific movie that came out probably last year. I saw it at a film festival a year or two ago called The Awakening. And she's terrific. It's this gothic, creepy, weird little ghost story uh, that nobody went to see. And she's made a number of those movies, like Starter for Ten and things like that, that she's so good in. But, uh, but you know, they, she, she's not making as much noise as I think that she should career-wise. So I was happy to see her in this. I hope it leads to more interesting things for her. Well, what I liked about the movie was that it dealt with complex ideas and wasn't afraid to kind of have really complex sequences, even though sometimes they involved action. Uh, the whole idea of the, the new iterations of the armor, what they can do, uh, the human-computer interfaces that you saw, they're playing around with ideas that, you know, this movie often feels like it is, it is tied to reality in terms of trying to think about the technology and thinking about how you problem solve, but has no problem sort of dealing with things that are still fantastical, that are just not possible. And I felt that the way that they kind of did it and still incorporated into the story, that that was pretty good. Um, I also like the way that, I mean, Robert Downey Jr. makes a far better genius in the Iron Man series than he does in the Sherlock Holmes series. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think for me, uh, the, I, I got Robert Downey Jr. out uh, because of the, the, the one-two punch of Iron Man and then the Sherlock Holmes coming on. And for me, I mean, they're, they're different characters, much different characters, but they both had a similar swagger to them. And uh, uh, I think I just got tired. And I, I didn't really like the Sherlock Holmes movies very much. So uh, I, I think that's what, what sort of put me off Iron Man 2 a little bit. But it's hard to, I think, portray genius. It's really hard to do it. Uh, a lot of writers have talked about it, that sometimes you have to play the character as either being insane yeah. or someone who really is intelligent, and it's hard to find actors that can do it. And so for me, it's, it's night and day between seeing Tony Stark Robert Downey Jr. is Tony Stark, and who actually seems to be able to think about things. Right. Like his mind is moving, he is looking, he's re referring to objects around him, he's plotting, he's planning. There is a methodology, there's a scientific process that he's thinking about. And then you compare that to uh, Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes films, in which he just seems to be a very entertaining drunk. He's kind right. of clever and can think faster than other people, and that's about it. There doesn't seem to be really much of, a, of an actual process going on. Yeah, he can be uh, drunk all the time, but still yet uh, be a great fighter as well. I think the character just seems to be kind of uh, a little bit too pat and too easy. He seems to be able to be whatever they need him to be in the moment that he needs to be it. Right. And then I, yeah, and it's there are movies that kind of capture the real genius, which you get a little bit in Iron Man. You get it in Breaking Bad, which is why I think everybody's so excited about that television series in which they show the methodology, they show someone thinking through chemistry in a very Tony Stark way. You get it in the BBC version of Sherlock, where Benedict Cumberbatch manages to pass that off. That's in right. fact, there's a sequence in Iron Man 3 where Tony Stark analyzes a crime scene. And he has the wonderful Minority Report technology where he throws all the imagery and the graphics and the holograms. Uh, there's an identical sequence in the Sherlock television series where Sherlock Holmes does that exact same thing, but in his mind. He's recalling all the, the clues and details that he has, and he's swirling them in his mind as he tries to process that. Now, that, the fact that people are, are trying to visualize that on 
on screen rather than just saying, well, he's wearing a white hat, so he must be a good guy and he'll take care of the bad guy. I think he's fantastic. I like that, that we see that. Yeah, they're doing that a little bit on the show called Hannibal as well now, where uh, uh, Hugh Dancy plays uh, the uh, whatever the William Peterson's character's name was from the from the original Maneater movie, uh, and he is um, the some sort of savant who can uh, sort of put himself in a crime scene, walk around the crime scene, and figure out what happens, and you see it all as it's sort of happening in his head, as though he's the killer, and it's an interesting way of of uh, showing what's going on, it'll, it'll show you the the horror of the crime scene and all the stuff you need to see without giving anything away in terms of who the killer is, because of course in his imagination it's him walking through the crime scene. So it's an interesting uh, take on that, I thought. Yeah, and I think it can be used um, poorly, in which it just is like a visual dossier for the audience to look at. Here's a reminder of all the clues. Or it can be used really intelligently, which is we're showing you how this person thinks. We're giving you a brief moment into their mind, which allows us to explain why he can just come up with this stuff later on, on the fly. Um, yeah, I think you're right that it was a bit of a, a cop-out that he didn't explain how he solved. I mean, there's a throwaway where they flip over a piece of paper and you can see some equations that he had jotted down at one point that sort of suggested that he could solve this. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. Was, it just seemed a little too easy and too pat, you know. <laughs> uh, what did you think? And this is—I found this movie difficult to speak about when I was reviewing it a week or so ago, uh, because there are a number of twists in here that you don't want to know about before you go in. And some stuff has been talked about online, uh, but you're not going to hear it from me. I'm not going to ruin this room. I'm not a big fan of spoilers, but um, I will say this. I loved what they did with the Mandarin. Yes. Yeah, I thought it was unexpected, and I thought that it was uh, interesting. It veers away dramatically from what happened in the comic books, apparently, and some comic book fans are a little upset about that because they don't see a real future for the Mandarin now as a character. Um, but uh, that's all I'm going to say about it. But I liked what they did with it, and I thought that it was... I thought it was clever and unexpected, and um, you know, if they could figure out something, if they can be that inventive with that character, they can be that inventive with the Pepper Potts character too. True, and I think they are kind of restricted in terms of fan expectation yeah. and trying to be true to the, the source material. I have to admit that when I first saw the first trailer and I saw that Ben Kingsley was the yeah. Mandarin, there was a part of me that kind of went, "That's an odd choice." Um, ben Kingsley is an actor. I'm a big fan. I love a lot of his work, <laughs> but his career has always been kind of treacherous and that he has just, he'll do anything. He'll, you know, as the, the saying goes, if you paid him, he'll eat a phone book. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. So I wasn't sure why they chose oh, that particular. That's for sure. Yeah. I, I, you know, I felt like, Oh no, the last thing I want in a movie of this nature is someone who's just taking a paycheck. Well, see, I don't think, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll interrupt you for a second. I, I don't think that he just takes paychecks. I do think that in things like Blood Rain and Thunderbirds and stuff, where he's also played bad guys, the King of the Vampires and, and you know, the, the Hood and the Thunderbirds, those are, are definitely roles, I think, that are, that are uh, technically beneath him in terms of you don't need to be a great actor, which he is, a great actor. You don't need to be a great actor to play those roles. Um, we know that he can play really menacing uh, 
interesting bad people like he did. He played uh, Don Logan in Sexy Beast, which is, I, I mean, such a fantastic performance. Uh, and so, you know, he can do it, but I think that sometimes he, he takes a step down in quality where he doesn't need to. He's okay in those movies, but the movies aren't as good as they could be. And so when I heard that he was in this, I thought, well, he can do it. I mean, technically, I know he can do it. But I just, you know, well, I didn't I mean, think he was going to do what he did. That's right, yeah. And I guess what I'm implying here is that there are people who hire him just because he's Ben Kingsley. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and then there are, are people who can actually have a really good role for him. Right. And so seeing what they did with the character, uh, yeah, he's perfect for it. And what he does with it in terms of, of that, that, that twist, I thought was brilliant. Because as soon as I saw where it was going, I realized he was the perfect guy because I knew the, the, the way he would approach it. And it worked out really, really well. Um, I mean, I'm no longer as angry as fans are when it comes to that kind of stuff because I know that uh, it doesn't mean anything anymore in movies. They'll, somebody else could reboot the Iron Man franchise and they'll do the whole thing all over again. Yeah, listen, look at Spider-Man, look at Batman, all that yeah. stuff. And, you know, fans that get terribly upset about uh, – movies that veer away from the source material uh you know they ruined iron man well no they haven't they haven't there are two different things there's the iron man comic books which have not have remained untouched and then there are the movies and you know they are two separate entities so my anger is usually when i feel that they've made a crappy product right. that they if you're going to ignore the source material i will forgive you if the movie is still good Right. If you if you bring me something and say, well, we did something interesting, but okay, you know, because again, I can go read my Iron Man comic books; it's not going to bother me. But I do get a little incensed when someone is is just, you know, well, according to feedback from audiences that we tested, or you know, test groups or stuff like that, and they change everything around. Well, we need to have more disabled people, and you know, oh, for crying out loud, it's, <laughs> it's a King Arthur story, but we need to have African Americans in it. It's like, no, just you know. It, when they ignore the source material because they want to go off and, and try to play to their audience, then that drives me crazy because it's right there. It's, you, all you have to do is follow the book. <laughs> right. Well, the, the Fantastic Four movies come to mind uh, in terms of that, which, you know, they, they were extremely popular, uh, uh, you know, comic books, the characters, everyone knows the characters, and yet they buggered those movies up so badly. Oh well, I mean, I would, you know, the, I don't know. I would say that fans were happy with Fantastic Four. A lot of people went and saw the movie. It made money. How I don't know, um, but they were they were <laughs> they were atrocious. And I was worried about the Fantastic Four because when that movie made that kind of money, I thought, oh no, we're gonna have to watch a whole string of really badly done comic book movie ad adaptations. Yeah. And thankfully, Marvel, you have to applaud Marvel for getting in there, taking charge of all their characters. Because there's there's the unfortunate sort of fate of Spider-Man over at Sony compared to the Avengers, Iron Man. I mean, what we've seen from Marvel's involvement in Hollywood has been fantastic. They've been cranking out really great, exceptional movies. Well, they have been cranking them out, too. I mean, I think what's, what you're going to end up with here, and whether this was the plan from the very beginning or not, maybe, I don't know. Who knows? You know, you never know what's going to be successful and what's not going to be. But I think we're going to end up with this weird universe, that's like a spider web, where all the movies are kind of related somehow. You know, and there's going to be a lot of them. And you know, you will be able to arrange somehow like a big puzzle 
nights where you can watch three or four seemingly unrelated movies, and yet in this universe they will all fit together somehow. Well, and that's what happened in the comics after about 25 years. Uh, Marvel realized that they had this universe, that you had characters, one in New York City, another one over uh, in another area of the world, and that you could have major, not only could you have them sort of, you know, this week, um, the, the thing appears in the comic, in the Spider-Man comic book, or, you know, the Fantastic Four decide to get together with, what you end up getting those, you eventually get to events that shake everybody. So they, from a marketing point of view, you'd have to go buy um, the story that began in, Star- in Spider-Man would continue on the Fantastic Four, maybe end in the X-Men, and you had to go buy all the damn comic books. Just to Why do you think they did it otherwise? I mean, they, yeah. they weren't looking to expand the universe and create a, you know, maybe there were some altruistic uh, things. They wanted you to buy comic books. I mean, I'm writing this book about Elvis Costello right now, and Stiff Records, and I may have talked about this on this podcast, Stiff Records, yeah, I did, when we were talking about collecting. Stiff Records used to uh, release records with all sorts of different covers. It's very common now, Entertainment Weekly, whatever, puts out, like, you've got four collector's covers, you know. But back in 1977, 76, uh, they would do this because they knew that Ian Dury's fans would go out and buy all 13 covers that they put out. And they did an interesting thing where they only sold them in various places. So people would travel and it became like a, like, oh, have you got this one? I got this one. I'll trade you. And they, they, they created a buzz and sold a ton of records by creating this, this uh, interest with the different covers. Simple, straight-ahead marketing. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say, I, one of the things I did like about Iron Man 3 was that there was no compunction in being destructive. Um, right. that far too often, I think, uh, people, they... they their heroes are invincible. Nothing bad ever happens. It's always a very, you know, you're riding a train that's going to go through all the successive stops to reach a very happy ending at the end of the movie. Uh, and what I what I liked about Iron Man 3 was that there was no problem with doing things that might make you go, oh, wait a moment. Yeah. <laughs> How can there be an Iron Man 4? You know. They blew his house up. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, all the things were, were kind of destroyed that way. And I thought that was very good. I mean, it was something that, Quentin is very good in his movies in yeah. doing that, of not have not pulling any punches in terms of how he throws his characters into peril, so that yeah. you're not sitting there thinking, "Oh, they're going to be okay." Oh no, no, no! You get to the point where you're now worried: Are they going to be okay? Well, and see, that's that's what what sinks uh, a lot of Will Smith's movies because he's the hero, and you know that nothing bad is ever going to happen to Will Smith in a movie. And he's only made one movie where he dies at the end, and I'm not going to tell you what it is, and just in case you haven't seen it, I don't want nasty spoiler letters. But but it's not a it's not an action movie; it's a much different thing. And and so you know, it takes away some of the some of the oop from these movies when you realize that the character is on some level invincible. You know, no matter what happens to him, he's probably going to survive. And you know, I mean, obviously they're not going to kill off Iron Man, but. You know, who knows how long Don Cheadle has a, has a contract for, you know, or John Favreau or Gwyneth Paltrow or any of them, you know. Uh, so, you know, just by the virtue of the fact that the movies are called Iron Man uh, means that that character probably isn't going anywhere anytime soon. But you don't know about the rest of the of the characters around. No, well, I think, you know, if you're a fan, you just have to be happy that it got this far, that yep. it became recognizable 
as being the Iron Man comic book. It may not be true completely, but it's recognizable in terms of the themes, in terms of the plot, the action, that it was a highly technical film. For a character like Iron Man that's built around technology, it should be and kind of remain true to that. And it's very entertaining and savvy. I mean, there's a lot of things that they really have gotten right uh, in um, in a business where that may seem nigh impossible to actually achieve. So I'm very happy with Iron Man 3, but I think partly because of other comic book movies, I've kind of learned to adjust my expectations. What we got from there, I think, was far better than other comic book movies I've seen. I'm very pleased with it. Well, and they all cost the same amount. That's the thing about movies. It's like it doesn't matter if a movie costs $25,000 to make or costs $150 million to make. It costs the same to the consumer. And so there's a level of expectation that goes along uh, with going to see a movie like uh, Iron Man. I don't think I loved it as much as you do, but I, I did like it. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed your day out at the movies. Well, and good for Shane Black. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he'll be back. Well, he'll any back. any time that you have somebody who you would never think could could pull off something like that, and they does, I think says that maybe they were overlooked for a while. Yeah, I mean, so. yeah. I, I mean, thought of him like you did as being a guy who just did buddy cop kind of stuff and sort of run the – the, the length of what was possible from him. It's like, ah, you know, hey, you were the guy who did, you know, 48 hours. That's great. You know. Well, it, it'll be, uh, it, it will be seeing a lot more of him. This movie has made so much money already, and it's only been out for a week in North America, a little bit longer in the rest of the world, but it's made uh, already, you know, 800 million bucks. So Shane Black doesn't have to worry about working for a while. Um, th that, I, I feel that's it. You feel that's it? I thought you had one more thing you wanted no, to talk about. No, there's there is nothing more over here. I uh, I'm looking at my little list of notes. I was just uh, I, I was glad to be able to chime in on Iron Man uh, uh, and in, in a significant way because it's a movie that I, is making so much money, and uh, I just wanted to. I'm curious because most everyone's liked it, but I know it's interesting to me. It seems to kick off it, the, all these Iron Man movies uh, always open on the same weekend, first weekend in May. And then the second weekend in May is never a good weekend at the movies in terms of business-wise because Iron Man is such a steamroller. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens on the 10th. This year it happens to fall on the 10th. It's usually like the first, second, or third, you know, and then it's the 8th, 9th, and 10th is the following weekend. And The Great Gatsby is opening. And the Great Gatsby is a beautiful movie with big stars, Leonardo DiCaprio and all that. Uh, uh, a very obviously, you know, in terms of you know what what movie marketers look for, it's got a brand that people know and understand. Uh, big name director and Baz Luhrmann, but it's falling on a weekend that Iron Man is still going to steamroll through. I think now it's counter programming to Iron Man, so maybe they're hoping that Iron Man was kind of like the action movie, and then this weekend, you know, all the girls are going like, "Come on, I went to see Iron Man last week. Let's go," you know. That's an oversimplification, but it's the kind of thing that, that marketers think about. So we'll see what happens. I'll be interested to know on Monday uh, how well The Great Gatsby does, because it it's going to get mixed reviews, I think. I quite liked it. I think it's a beautiful movie, uh, but I just maybe think that they picked the wrong weekend to, to release it. But what do I know? Now, I mean, does that – was is it a – uh, it's a beautiful movie, but is it a well-acted movie? Do you think it's a yeah. No, absolutely. It, it is. Uh, listen, it's a, uh, DiCaprio is sort of born. He is, you know, this movie, this book hasn't been turned into that many movies. There have been uh, a silent version or two. Uh, there's been a television version with Mira Sorvino. Uh, Jay Gatsby has popped up 
in loads of other things as, you know, uh, a character here and there. But really, the main versions are an Alan Ladd version <clears throat> from about 1949. <coughs> Pardon me. Uh, the Robert Redford version from 74. And then this one. And, uh, you know, Alan Ladd was the Robert Redford of his generation. And I don't know if I would call Leonardo DiCaprio the Robert Redford of his generation. But he certainly uh, has the stuff to pull this off. So he's great. Uh, I've read the book time and time and time and time again. And the character of Daisy Buchanan, who, uh, I don't it, it, the, the story essentially, and I'll be quick in telling it, the story essentially is that uh, Nick Carraway is a young guy who's living in a place called West Egg, and it's a rich enclave just outside of New York City. He's living in a guest house on this big sprawling property. The guy that lives next door to him in this mansion, more like a palace really, is Jay Gatsby, and he throws these incredible parties. The who's who of, of New York comes to them. Right across the bay from him is... Uh, uh, Daisy Buchanan and her husband, who is old money. He is very, very old money. And someone who uh, has been uh, part of the West Egg community for many, many years. And uh, Daisy also happens to be Nick Carraway's cousin. So they meet. He mentions Gatsby. She is, what? Jay Gatsby? I didn't know he was here. And it turns out that Jay Gatsby... Uh, who is now a multi-millionaire or and passes himself off as a, an aristocrat, wasn't always that. It turns out he made his money as a bootlegger, that he was penniless, but that Daisy was very much in love with him. He went off to war and then literally never came back because he didn't want to uh, uh, court her until he could do it to the style in which she had become accustomed. He comes back, she's married, he's distraught, so he buys a house, builds a house right across the bay from her house, throws these incredible parties in hopes that she'll come over and they'll be reconnected. Uh, but unfortunately, he cannot recreate, or he cannot uh, manage his future as well as he has recreated his past, and then it turns out to be a tragedy. Uh, the, the character of Daisy Buchanan is an amazing character who, for my money, has never been portrayed properly on the big screen. Mia Farrow was awful in the Robert Redford version. She had the right look, but just wasn't the right, didn't handle it very well. Daisy Buchanan is uh, a socialite, a debutante, a deeply shallow and selfish person, but she knows the right thing to do and yet chooses to go take the easy way out at virtually every turn and uh, uh, go for the money. Go where the, go essentially go where the, where the money is. And Carrie Mulligan absolutely bang on nails it. And I, I was just so thrilled to see her do this because it's such a terrific performance of a character who is uh, complex, you know, shallow on one hand, but a very complex character to play. And Carrie Mulligan, I think, is the best Daisy Buchanan there has been yet. So, um, yeah, it's beautiful to look at. It's well acted. You know, the, the, the novel is extremely difficult to bring to the big screen. Uh, there have to be structural changes made to it just so that you can tell it. In the book, it's told by a narrator, this Nick Carraway, the great Gatsby, Jay Gatsby, isn't, well, he's, I guess, the main character, but he's, he's, he's being observed the, the entire time, which makes it difficult 
to to create a, a, a narrative structure for a movie around that. So they've had to add little bookends. They've had to create a new structure for it. And uh, some people, it's going to drive crazy. Other people, uh, like me, will just accept that you have to tell the story somehow from a point of view. And this movie definitely has one. So I think it's a terrific movie. It opens on Friday, you know, uh, May 10th. Uh, depending on when you're watching this mm -hmm. and uh, and it's good stuff but I, I'm curious to see if it gets uh, falls victim to the uh, Iron Man steam roller. Now do you think it's gonna get um, a bit of a bump because of the popularity of Downton Abbey which is mentioned in Iron Man 3 actually? I know there's even a, there's a Downton Abbey gag in, in, in uh, Iron Man 3. Uh, it, it might well do you know I mean I, I think that uh, period pieces for a very long time were thought of as, you know, uh, Merchant Ivory movies that they'd be stuffy and they'd be, you know, sort of like upstairs, downstairs, which you had to be English to understand or appreciate, you know, uh, that's what people thought. Um, uh, now Downton Abbey, I think has changed that to a great degree. I mean, Downton Abbey, upstairs, downstairs was an enormous hit, but it was also 40 years ago. And I think that the Downton Abbey has, has opened up uh, people's ideas uh, or people's minds to the idea that, you know, a period piece like this can be kind of sexy and filled with intrigue and all that stuff. And, you know, that's very definitely what you'll find here. I mean, you know, it's, uh, this movie is phenomenal to look at, but there's also a uh, great complexity to the characters. Uh, there's a lot going on story-wise. And uh, I, I think that if you're a Downton Abbey fan, it's a much different thing, but you won't be scared of this or you shouldn't be scared of this at all. Yeah, I think we've got, I mean, the old, costume dramas and period pieces, they almost seemed very repressed. I, I watched David Lean's Close Encounters the other day and um, giggled through the whole thing because it is that stereotype of two people who are, but I, well, I, you know, I never really want to say or speak exactly how they're feeling. And I guess what Downton Abbey has done is sort of tossed that out and said, you know, we're not going to be quite so uh, bundled up and repressed about things. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, the, the, the class structure that we're looking at in The Great Gatsby is a little buttoned up. I mean, you know, you've got Jay Gatsby, who is a poor farmer, uh, who has taught himself how to behave like an aristocrat. So he calls everyone old sport because he heard someone doing that. And, you know, it's something that's interesting because he says it a lot during the movies, over and over and over and over again, and it becomes quite grating. And I thought to myself, uh, that had to be a choice. That had to be an acting choice. Because uh, DiCaprio is too smart to allow it to become as grating as it does in the film. And I think the idea, as we get closer to the reveal that Jay Gatsby isn't who he is, and we find that out earlier on, but as the uh, other characters around him are finding that out, he starts to become a bit more desperate and the old sports becomes a bit more, you know, desperate and a little bit more high pitched. And, you know, and so I, it's a, it's an acting choice and it works really well, I think. And it shows that, you know, beneath this kind of button down character is this, uh, is this desperation and this great passion and, and all sorts of other things. So, I mean, it's a, you know, as I say, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting movie. Uh, for some, it may be a little bit too surface because, I mean, these party scenes, which form kind of the, the, the basis of the first part of the movie. I mean, holy crap. I can't imagine how much they cost a stage. I mean, some of them must be CGI, but I mean, it's just, there's not, I saw it, it's big 3D, you start out, I saw it in the AUX, and 
there's not a centimeter of the screen that there's not someone going like there's even <laughs> there's something happening on every centimeter of this screen and it's a lot it's a lot but uh but it's quite beautiful yeah it's quite beautiful so i i uh i, I give it a recommend Oh, fantastic. And I know some people might be thinking, but wait a moment, this is a zombie podcast. Zombie fans aren't interested in that. Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. So, I'm sure there'll be many, many great zombie fans watching The Great Gatsby. I think uh, so, too, yeah. It's, it's now, worth having a look at. Are they making Pride and Prejudice and Zombies new movie? I've, I've heard, heard that they are. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the, I'm just going to look it up here. Um, uh, but, I haven't you know, read the book. I really should read the book. I've been meaning to. When it first sort of hit Amazon, I thought it was just somebody slapping a you know funny cover on an out of date copy of Pride and Prejudice and trying to sell it that way. And then it's gotten such a large following that this is what I just heard. They are making it. It, it looked like it was dead for a while, uh, but they've just cast it now. And uh, Lily Collins, who is Phil Collins's daughter, is the star. Wow, okay. Wow, wouldn't have thought that. Yep. So we've got that to look forward to. Zombies and corsets. That'll be great. Yeah, this looks like it might be a couple of years away yet. It, it, they tried to make it in December '09 with Natalie Portman, and it was going to be directed by David O. Russell, and then it's been up and down. There have been you know, directors coming and going on this thing like a revolving door. So we'll see. Cool. All right. Well, um, I guess that's it. Uh, as always, I want to thank people who have uh, been subscribing. It seems like each week I get a new subscriber to our channel. Thank like you it. very much for that. I like it. And, and if uh, go to heyallyouzombies.com for more uh, zombie-related information. Hey, all you zombies-related information. Sure. Yeah. By all means, if what we I would love to hear are any kind of recommendations, books, movies, uh, games, card games, things that you think are very, very cool that you'd love to have us check out. I'd like to hear that. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely.